0: Welcome to the Freudcast. There's no doubt that the global pandemic has not only caused its own problems, but also made worse many that already existed. The UN World Food Programme is warning that COVID-19 could double the number of people suffering from acute hunger. By the end of 2020, that could mean a quarter of a billion people. Corin Woods is director of communications and advocacy at the World Food Program and spoke to Freud's Laura Round about the challenges of the issue telling the story and to begin putting it in context.
1: Before we were hit by COVID-19 we were also we were already facing what we thought would be the worst possible year around the impact of conflict climate and economic downturn in terms of the number of people who were food insecure. So we were already thinking this is going to be the worst possible year that we're have. We we're, we're dealing with. We'll have multiple emergencies. We already have Yemen. We already have Syria. We already have South Sudan. We already have Somalia. So we knew it was going to be a tough year. The impact of COVID-19 has caused a number of different challenges. So if last year we as the World Food Programme fed 100 million people, that meant either getting cash into the hands of people for them to go out and buy food for themselves or getting food into their hands because there's no food in the marketplace to buy. What we've found and, and, and seen now is we already knew that the impact of conflict and climate were likely to increase that 100 million to 130 million. So suddenly an increase of those numbers. Then you take an, uh, this additional set of numbers of people that we need to reach. Now, those will be people with small businesses, the sort of people who are running small um, small shops in some of the African capitals that you might have visited, some people have might have seen. Or when you go to India, some of the sort of tuk-tuk drivers, those sorts of people. When you have a close down, those people are not getting any income. So the greatest fear we have is each one of those people, if people aren't going to their shops, their shops are locked down, they have no income, they're being driven into a situation where we need to work out how to support them. So this is an immense challenge that we already were seeing the need to reach 100-130 100, 130 million people, and then the potential of another 130 million being driven into this level of food insecurity, mm. and that's in an environment which where, where we're seeing ports being closed down to, so it's taking longer to get where we're having to get food in to get food into into certain countries, backlogs in terms of. Um, uh, trying to get, get get through border controls and so on and so forth. So our supply chain pipeline. And then think about the people working in some of those environments where the fear of COVID-19 is very real, but the health system and the infrastructure is not so strong, and that we as WFP do not want to actually be in a situation where we or any other humanitarian is burdening that country. And so we're also having to deal with a very real situation for our staff, which is why we have set up for the whole of the UN system and humanitarians and the Save the Children's and the MSF of this world, an air ambulance service, so, so flights to get people in, mobile hospitals and, inf- and the infrastructure to ensure that we can get people into the countries where we need to continue to work, and also the hospitals and those sorts of things, so that we don't burden those countries if staff are impacted.
2: And for World Hunger Day, uh, you launched a campaign called Missing This Meal, which has been widely shared by corporates, activists and celebrities and the like. Tell us a bit more about this campaign.
1: So it's really simple that we started to think about, well, how do you connect the experience that you or I might have of COVID-19, with the impact and experience that somebody sitting in a Zambia or in a Zimbabwe or in a Uganda might have. Mm. And there were two experiences where food sits at the centre and meals sit at the centre. And we know that we become very concerned sitting in Rome or London or New York or Berlin that what we're doing is we're missing really wonderful meals that we might have with friends and family. I'm missing currently the fact that I can't fly to the UK and see my mother and have her pick some courgettes from the garden and cook me a courgette soup and sit and talk to her. Now, that's the thing I'm missing. She's missing me. I'm missing her. But for somebody who is, you know, Malish, who we're working with, you know, who's in Bidi Bidi refugee camp, his the, the what he's in the situation of is he is he is the potential that he'll be actually missing a meal he won't be eating so we wanted to join those two things together and just ask people post up the picture of the thing that you're missing the most at this moment the meal you're missing the most the person you're missing the most and then donate money to wfp and challenge others to do the same so let's form a link of solidarity between those who are missing meals which are emotional and about family and about friends, with those whose potential is that they will miss the very fabric of their lives, which is food. Mm. And WFP is the bridge to support those things. It's a simple idea, but it's a very powerful idea based on the
2: fact meals are the thing that brings us together. Absolutely. And well, clearly COVID-19 is intensifying the existing problems. Um, but there are many other ongoing emergencies in the world. Uh, what countries or regions are in particular need of the world's attention?
1: Yemen was very much on our mind, um, 20, 2018, 2019. Now, Yemen, a situation man-made. It's man-made, it's conflict. And when you have half a population who don't know where their next meal is coming from. When you have a population where, as the World Food Programme, we are feeding 12 million people every single day. Yemen is a a country that's very, very much on our minds. And our hope is that no one, through the impact of COVID-19, has forgotten the situation in Yemen. So Yemen is very, very, very much on, on our minds and we think the world needs to keep its attention to Yemen. We're also looking at um, Syria and continuing to look at the situation in Syria. You know, we we saw, we've seen over the last last number of years the flux of um, refugees coming out of Syria, the impact of the conflict there. Again, Syria is a country where we continue and we need to focus our attention. We then look at we're then looking at countries in the Sahel where we've seen the real impact of climate change. You know, many of us talk about climate change, and we're starting to see the sights of climate change. People in the Sahel are living the impact of climate change every single day. Now, there are things we could do, and we are continuing to do, to work with some of those farmers and those communities to build the resilience to the impacts of climate change. But the Sahel is something we very, very, very seriously are focusing on because we cannot afford to have an uprising of conflict in the Sahel as a result of climate and climate conflicts. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a, you know, a number of countries. We at the World Food Programme talk about level three emergencies. And when we have a level three emergency, we put our full weight behind it. Myself from the communications side, our fundraisers, our, um, our, our program and operational folks, our supply chain—we have never had so many level three emergencies. With seven level three emergencies before we hit COVID nineteen, which is a global level three emergency. So it's a tough time. Last year we raised eight billion dollars, and donors have been very, very generous and given us eight billion dollars to feed a hundred million people, and we do it, and we've delivered. This next year. With the impact of COVID-19, with the impacts that we're seeing, we're really, really looking at what can we do in terms of bringing in the funds to reach 100, 130. We're still looking at the number of people that we're going to have to actually reach. And so our focus is, and then how do you do it in an environment where... It's not so easy if you have to get food and commodities, if you actually have to do general food distribution. How do we do this differently? Getting cash into people's hands is really important. And we're also advocating very hard with governments to get a number of places where we need to get essentially money into people's hands to be able to stimulate the markets and for them to be able to prevent themselves falling into that food insecurity, so we're working with a number of governments. We're about to sign an agreement with the government of Sudan, where we can actually work with them to ensure that that safety net and economic stimulation is coming in. Because what we have to, what we want to do is prevent. We don't want to have an increased numbers of people that we have to reach. What we want to do is to prevent that happening and, and ensure that people can, can start to build, build their lives and build their lives better.
2: And um, as you know, at, at Freud's, the Sustainable Development Goals are at the heart of, of our work and you ran the UN Millennium Campaign when the SDGs were launched back in 2015. Tell us what that was like. I think what was very interesting is the forerunner to the
1: SDGs were the Millennium Development Goals. And the difference between the Millennium Development Goals and the SDGs is the Millennium Development Goals were developed by UNDP, written very famously a group of men wrote them on a bit of, on a bit of paper, wrote down the Millennium Development Goals, and faxed them over to um, the secretary General and various other folks and those were agreed to the, M, the SDGs. The Secretary-General at the start of the SDGs said, "Let's make this the most open and transparent process that is owned by the world." Mm. And that was the most monumental thing: that the SDGs weren't designed by a group of grey bureaucrats, nor only by member states, although member states remain accountable. That that what was f- extraordinary about the process of the development of the SDGs, what they developed through the process of conversations and thoughts that came from the private sector. Amazing engagement of the private sector. Companies sitting down, even starting with Paul Pullman from Unilever, who sat on the high-level panel in the first instance. Civil society organisations, some of those NGOs, some of those activists, all engaged in the conversation. Individuals. Individuals. I ran something called the My World Survey that had 10 million people who answered the question of these 17 things what matters to you and your life? Also, we had um, experts, technical experts. And so, the design of the SDGs in its formation, in their formation, was something that was owned by the world, not owned by either the UN group of bureaucrats. And with the adoption, the amazing moment of adoption meant we landed on fertile soil to, for them to make a reality in comparison to the MDGs, where there was definitely a sense of the world waking up to these goals and targets. But the thing I would say that it, 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 I think even now, and if anybody listening to this, I would say, and this is where where my world, the World Food Programme and the UN Millennium Campaign come together. While the 17 goals and targets are important, and they matter, and they're good markers. Think about the principle of the SDGs. They're universal. It's not just for developing countries. It's for everywhere. But also the principle of the furthest behind first. Absolutely. Shared prosperity for the furthest behind first. Those people who are most marginalized, most hungry, most have, have the least advantage, start with those people, Start with those people. And if you can build the potential for those people to realize their, their potential, then you can change the world. And so that, 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 that focus on equality, the furthest behind first, is the thing we continually have to hold on to. So when we're thinking about food systems, which we're really thinking about very hard, the impact of COVID-19, what is it we need to do? what's the uh, how, how do we need to redesign food systems yes sustainable absolutely sustainable but how do we feed the planet but feed the planet and those who are furthest behind first how do we do that that last mile and the biggest danger we see is conversations around food systems not taking into account that piece about those people and so we believe that's where we really need to focus the world's attention on How do we continually do that? Because those 100 million people we are reaching every single day, the 821 million people who we know are are walking towards food insecurity, not having enough to eat every day, those people, those are the furthest behind. And we need to make sure that our focus is always back to them if we're to meet the very sort of essence of the sustainable development goals.
2: And so from a communications perspective, um, what are the main challenges you face when communicating the World Food Programme's core messages?
1: I think, you know, the beauty of the World Food Programme is we have the most obvious name, we're about the business of food. And then it's our greatest weakness. So in our strength lies our weakness. We're about so much more than just food. And so part of the challenges is you take an organisation which is tackling some of the very root causes of why people why there might be food insecurity, that's tackling that's road building, that's that's tree planting, an organisation that is thinking about social protection in this moment in time, and then how do we get the world's attention? And I think what we've got is an organisation that's not well known. Why isn't it well known? Because we've we've done such a good job. Governments have continued to fund us. billion, we're the the largest UN organization, but we're barely known because we haven't needed to be. We now are in a situation where we're looking at how do we get individuals to support us? How do we work with the private sector more closely? So part of the challenge is how how do we find ourselves in a situation where we can build our brand with those people who don't know us? But there's also a question of how do we build a brand that isn't the single bit which is the most obvious bit. Yes, we are amazing. We can fly an aeroplane and we can drop food into South Sudan. We did it in Syria when Derizal was uh, besieged and people were literally starving to get dead, and we managed to do it. That's the well-known, the saving lives bit. But we do so much more around the areas of how you change people's lives, help people build resilience. And so building that full brand to an audience that doesn't know us is one of the things that is a major challenge as a communicator. And then emergencies. Emergencies, if you're in an emergency organization, what you find is it just comes to you again and again and again. And it's like being a surfer. The next wave hits you of the next emergency. So even as we're sitting here talking about Covid nineteen impacts. I'm looking at the next wave of the numbers and the impact of cl- of conflict in Yemen, and we're seeing that happening. So we're seeing that happening continually, and so that is also the, the the challenge as a as a as a communicator is how do you tell that story in a way that is planned and strategic when you're being hit by uh, the waves of. Um, emergencies and needing to communicate and position around these things and then always a big institution it's
2: reputation protection reputation yeah.
1: protection reputation
2: yeah. protection. and also i mean your, your audience is truly global so that in itself yeah. must be a you know huge challenge
1: yeah and absolutely you know it, one, one of the challenges is so we have a very strong partnership with the world bank with ministers of fi- ministries of finance across Africa and Asia and Latin America, and the Middle East. Now that audience, and then and then their parliamentarians, and we have donors and their parliamentarians. Now that's one set of audiences. That's a very different audience to the man or woman in the street in Brighton, who is also our audience. How do we, how, how do we manage a consistent brand and storyline that works for both of those audiences and speaks to their truth and their knowledge? That's also in, in what's always going to be a resource constrained time. And where the biggest challenge is, is actually return of investment in terms of attention. It's, that it's, it's actually getting attention on our issues because the world is full of lots of other things. So how do we get our attention and attention on our issues?
0: Thanks to Corinne and Laura and to you for listening. You can hear other episodes of The Freudcast on the usual platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud especially, and see what's coming up on Freud's LinkedIn and Instagram pages. I'm Matt Barbette. Bye for now.